going to be in Luke chapter 12 this morning. Luke chapter 12, continuing our series, Jesus for Everyone. And uh, in the middle of a section of teaching here in Luke 12 that, frankly, uh, it's it's not my favorite. I mean, it's not that I, I, I have anything against it. It's just, uh, it's not what I would want to preach week after week after week. But but this is what we're doing. We're working our, our way verse by verse through this. And uh, as we go through this, we're kind of in this section where we're acknowledging and Jesus is kind of saying, yes, Jesus is for everyone, but not everyone is for Jesus. And in so doing, he's given us warning after warning after warning about this type of person and that type of person that think that they have it together or, or are worried about things that they should not be worried about and they're, they're ignoring things that they uh, should be paying attention to or they are worried about things here on this earth when they should be worried about eternal things. Just, just warning after warning after warning. And, and, and frankly, I would rather give you like one week of warnings and then like lots of weeks of reassurances. That's what I would rather do if I were to just stand up here and preach uh, what I want to do. But, what, but walking through this, uh, what we have here is unavoidable. So Luke 12 is where we're going to be. And while you turn there, I wanted to ask you guys, uh, how many people currently have their Christmas tree already up right now? Show of hands. See, I ask that question because I like conflict. I like to see people fight. That's what I, and for whatever reason, this is like, like the source of the most conflict uh, within, uh, with, within our culture right now is the, the pre-Thanksgiving and the post-Thanksgiving Christmas celebrators. Uh, I know some of you are already in the Christmas spirit, and some of you need a little help to get there this, this morning. So, so for those of you that need help, I want to kind of, uh, help you start thinking towards your family Christmas card for the year. All right, so that's what we're going to do to start this morning. We're going to talk about our, our our family Christmas card. So so we've got I've got a few of them here. You know the 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 traditional Christmas cards that you guys can can uh, can imagine here. Got some that were sent to us over the years. So you can just imagine your Christmas card and and what you might want on that Christmas card. So start start thinking through that. And I want you to think of the the, the first one. Go ahead and put the first one up there. The first picture. Um, so you can imagine that on the front of the card. Maybe you can imagine uh, this, uh, this inscription on the outside of the card, a good Bible verse to use at Christmas. For uh, to us a child is born, and to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder, and his name shall be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Everlasting Father, Prince of Peace. And then whenever you open it up on the inside of the card, it would say, May the peace of God which surpasses all understanding Bring you hope this Christmas. Of course, quoting Philippians 4, 7. So if you need help, there you go. There's one Christmas card idea for you. Here's another one that you might be able to, to, to use. So you could use a, a card like this, or maybe you can imagine a, a star overlooking a, a manger, maybe some deer, maybe some like weird-looking Christmas carolers with their mouth open, uh, whatever. You can think about any of these. Maybe you like the more traditional uh, like uh, the, the, the angels, like the more traditional angels, whatever, you can, you can use that. And then you open it up and you have this verse. And the angel said to them, Fear not, for behold, I bring you good news of great joy that will be for all the people. For unto you is born this day in the city of David a Savior, who is Christ the Lord. And this will be a sign to you, for you will find a baby wrapped in swaddling clothes, lying in a manger. And suddenly there was with the angel a multitude of heavenly hosts praising God and saying, Glory to God in the highest and on earth peace among those with whom he is pleased. 
It's another great Christmas verse for us, another great one for your Christmas card. So I'm just trying to help you out, get you into that Christmas spirit. You Scrooges that that don't want to decorate yet, I'm just trying to, to help you out a little bit. This one, Luke 12, has always made a lot of sense to me. So you can imagine a card like this. Uh, looks looks you know nice and and, and kind of pretty. You got the fire there in the middle, and then on the, the the front of the card it reads this: "I came to cast fire on the earth, and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with, and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to bring peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division." And on the inside of the card, you open it up and it says, For from now on, in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son and son against father and mother against daughter and daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law, daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. Merry Christmas from the Lemons family, (laughs) right? It's an option for you. You can do that, right? It's another example of what you can do for a Christmas card this year. So if you didn't get a card last year or maybe you didn't send one, there's you some ideas. You can do that. Here's the thing. We don't put that last one on Christmas cards, right? We don't put that one on Christmas cards. We save those verses for election season. That's when we use those verses. Uh, so, So which is it? Is Jesus the Prince of Peace who has come to bring peace on earth and goodwill to men, uh, or is he uh, the guy who comes with fire in his eyes and a sword in his hands, and he has come to bring all kinds of other things than peace on earth? Jesus says himself, don't think that I came to bring peace, but a sword of division. There are all kinds of tensions in this verse that we can make, that can, that can make it very hard for us to understand. Uh, there may be fewer verses in all of the Gospels that are more unexpected based off of how the Gospels begin with the narrative of the birth of Jesus versus the teachings whenever Jesus is in his ministry. Is he the Prince of Peace or not? Or should we take him at his own word that he did not come to bring peace? I want to read these verses again when I'm not being goofy with the Christmas card here. I just want to read them again and let you kind of like, like, like think through these verses and hear them. These are the words of Jesus as he is teaching a large crowd. I came to cast, this is verse 49, Luke 12, 49. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. Do you think that I have come to give peace on earth? No, I tell you, but rather division. From now on in one house, there will be five divided, three against two and two against three. They will be divided father against son, son against father, mother against daughter, daughter against mother, mother mother-in-law against her daughter-in-law and daughter-in-law against her mother-in-law. So we have a little work to do this morning to figure out what in the world is Jesus trying to teach us here. How can we have his description as being the prince of peace, and yet he says he did not come to bring peace? How do these things work together? 
First thing that I want us to see here is, is, is the, as, as we kind of do a little bit of work to understand this, the first thing that I want you to see is how many times Jesus makes declarative statements about who he is and what he came to do. We have several in this one little verse, in this one little, little paragraph right here, but it's all over the, the scriptures. Time and time again, you hear Jesus say in this, in this and, and elsewhere, I came to do this. I was sent to do this. I am this. I am that. I am the way. I am the truth. I am the life. I came to do these things. He came with a purpose. Jesus never shies away from saying, come to me, look to me, follow me. He never shies away from those things. He never like defers and demurs, which is what we say is the, 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 the good way for people to act. Is they, should, they should be self-effacing and they should say, oh, no, 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 not towards me, which is right for everyone else to act in that way except for Jesus. And why is it different for Jesus? Because Jesus is different than everyone else. And Jesus never backs away from that. Jesus never backs away from saying, I am the center of it all. I am the center of history. I am the center of all your theology. I am the center of your life. Come follow me. He never backs away from that. He never backs away from saying he came with a mission. He never says, I'll figure it out as I go along. He says, I am here for this reason. Even whenever he's 12 years old, he says, I am here about my father's business. He never backs away from that. And he never backs away because he knows he's the only one that can bear the weight of all of those things. If I were to stand up here and I were to say, you guys should listen to me. You come follow me. As I set the example, as I am the standard bearer, you follow me because I am your pastor and you need to do as I tell you to do. I cannot stand up here and say that because I cannot bear the weight of that. At some point, I will crack under that. I will falter under that. I will not be the person that I am calling you to be. And so therefore, you can't follow me because where I go would take you off the path. Jesus, though, is not like me. Jesus can say, come follow me because he can bear the weight of it. And because he knows that his mission is to declare that these things are true. He is there to call all men to himself. John 12, uh, 32 says it this way. And I, this is Jesus says, and I, when I am lifted up from the earth, will draw all people to myself. And it says that he said this to show what kind of death he was going to die. Jesus never backs away from the singularity of who he is. Do you know what I mean when I say that? The, The uniqueness of who he is. The onlyness of Jesus. He never backs away from that. As the Son of God, He is the only one that can accomplish the mission that He has set out to accomplish. And it is this reality that He never backs away from this. It is this reality. That is why following Jesus will always, from the day he walked this earth until the day he returns, will always turn people against those who follow him. Because we also cannot back down from this truth. 
we cannot back down. He is our only hope, and to stand on an only hope is by its very nature divisive in what it says. It says there is no other way. It says there is no one else that can bear the weight. It says there is no one else that can accomplish the mission. It says there is no other faith, no other salvation to be found in anyone other than him. And that is, by its very nature, a divisive statement. And it's wholly unavoidable for the Christian to not stand in that place. G.K. Chesterton, the the philosopher and and theologian that lived in the the earlier 1900s, once commented on this idea that we as Christians are are seen as arrogant, right? This is the, the, the charge that comes against us when we stand on the onlyness of Jesus, that we are arrogant because we insist on Jesus being the only way to find peace and how backward that thinking is to our culture. He says, Uh, He says this, he says, What we suffer from today is humility in the wrong place. A man was meant to be doubtful about himself, but undoubting about the truth. This has been exactly reversed. We're on the road to producing a race of men too mentally modest to believe in the multiplication table. He said that in 1932, I think. Doesn't take long for us to to hear the, the cultural... Uh, narrative out there today and know that that is, if that, if that wasn't at least a, a, an insightful thing, it is prophetic to where we are today. Our culture has said that standing on truth is arrogant, but the Christian contention is that standing on truth is in fact the posture, or at least it should be the posture of humility. That standing on truth is not the arrogant position, but the humble position. For our assertion is, is the same of that of Martin Luther. Here I stand. I can do no other. There's nothing else I can do here but stand in this place of truth. We stand on the truth and the uniqueness of Jesus because we can do no other. We dare not place ourselves above the revealed truth of the nature and the work of Jesus. To do so would not be humility, but the height of arrogance. For us to stand and to say that even though he has said he is the way, the truth, and the life, but we declare that he is a way and a truth and a way unto life, that is not humility, but it is a stunning arrogance that we know better than the creator of all things. It is inevitable and paradoxical that in bringing us peace, in in the way that he brings us peace, he also brings us division. And we'll talk through a little bit of that here in just a minute. Division even in our, our closest, most personal relationships. The very thing that brings us peace will also be the thing that brings division to us. Jesus tells us they hated him, they will hate us too. As the cross makes peace with God, it simultaneously becomes a source of division among men. One thing that Jesus never minces words about is how hard it would be in this life to follow him. How prosperity gospel preachers can get away with the things that they say When you have Jesus saying things like, take up your cross, they hated me, they'll hate you. 
following me is going to turn father against son and mother against daughter. How Jesus is saying those things over and over and over. And yet a prosperity gospel preacher can get up and say, if you follow Jesus, you will get everything that you've ever wanted and everything you've ever hoped for. It baffles me how they can get away with saying that and not know that they will be found out almost immediately. Jesus never minces words. To follow him will inevitably mean division among men. So two things are true. We can be at peace with God, more on that in just a minute, but in standing on the truth of the gospel, we inevitably find division among men. This is not something we seek out. This is an error that that so many Christians make, is that they say, yeah, 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 it says that it came to bring division. That means it's cool if I hate everybody and everybody hates me. In fact, I'm going to say some intentionally inflammatory rhetoric in order to get you to not like me even more, or specifically because I know you don't like it, and we go seeking out the conflict. That is not what Jesus calls us to be. He does not call us to avoid the conflict and to just go along, to get along, and to back down whenever we have to stand on the truth. He does not say that, but he also does not say go seeking out the conflict. Just a note for those of you all that are about to eat Thanksgiving dinner with a lot of different people, right? Paul tells us that we are to live peaceably with all men so long as it depends on us. The reality of who Jesus is is that he is unlike anyone and that he could only accomplish the mission that he came to accomplish to make peace between us and God. One of the most, the most common uh, tricks of Satan is to convince the world that Jesus is something very different than what he actually is. We see this, this rhetoric where people will take the words of Jesus and they will pit them against the words of Paul. Have you seen this trick, this kind of rhetorical trick where people will argue this way and they say, I follow Jesus, I, I follow the words of Jesus, I like Jesus, I just don't particularly like Paul. And then push to uh, a, a segment of scripture, like, like put... Uh, Segments of scripture into the parts that uh, that they 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 are that some that are authoritative and some that are opinion and 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 somehow it always works out that the parts that they like are authoritative and the parts that they don't are opinion and they kind of chop scripture up in, in in that way and there are, are myriads of problems with 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 that approach not the least of which is that it completely undercuts the the, the power and the authority of scriptures but even if we were to accept the premise that we just take the words of Jesus and not the words of Paul and the other authors of Scripture. Again, not a good way to do it. But let's just, let's just pretend that that approach to Scripture is right and that we just take the words of Jesus to be our words. You have to still deal with Jesus on his own terms, not the terms that you want to see. And by his own words here, Jesus lays out who he is. Prince of Peace goes on Christmas cards as it should, but the Prince of Peace is also a righteous judge. And you don't get one part of Jesus, you get all of him. Let's see what he says here in his own words in Luke chapter 12, uh, verse 49. Read it again. I came to cast fire on the earth and would that it were already kindled. I have a a baptism to be baptized with and how great is my distress until it is accomplished. He uses this fire imagery here. 
This is not the first time that we've heard the, the mention of fire in Luke's gospel and even fire of judgment in Luke's gospel. One time, just in chapter 9, just a few chapters ago, we looked at this when James and John wanted to call down fire on the Samaritan village that rejected Jesus. And you remember, Jesus basically looks at them and is like, you guys are knuckleheads. You do not get at all what I am doing here. He, he chastises them. He rebukes them for them wanting to call down fire. So we know that, 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 that Jesus didn't, that, that in that context, that's not how Jesus sees the, the fire raining down. So Jesus says, nope, that's not it. That's not what it, it, it looks like. I don't think Jesus came to blast people off the earth uh, for, 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 for how he's been treated. This is not a knee-jerk reaction to people being mean. This is not what Jesus is saying here. These are the words of a man on a mission that has set out to do something. And we know that judgment And fire is part of his mission because his forerunner told us that it was part of his mission. In Luke chapter 3, John the Baptist talking about what Jesus came to do. John the Baptist answered them all saying, I baptize you. This is Luke 3.16. I baptize you with water, but he who is mightier than, than I is coming. The strap of whose sandals I am not worthy to untie. He will baptize you with the Holy Spirit and fire. Those are not saying like the two things go together. That is saying one thing and another. They are not two complementary things, but they are two things that have a different purpose. Because it then says, His winnowing fork is in his hand to clear the threshing floor and to gather the wheat into his barn, but the chaff will burn with unquenchable fire. We like to run by the fire part, but John tells us this is part of his mission from the word go. From the very beginning, all of that language about winnowing forks and chaff and unquenchable fire, it's all meant to point us to to, to God's judgment. When it says baptized with the Holy Spirit and fire or water and fire, he's not saying uh, two good baptisms. He's talking about one of salvation and one of judgment. Nobody likes to talk about this part of Jesus' mission, at least not anymore. And I'm right there. I'm telling you, I wish we could have done this whole section in one sermon, move on, and let's talk about thanksgiving and being thankful. That is a much happier conversation for us to have. Nobody likes to talk about this. Now, there's a section of kind of that old-time religion that this is all that they talked about. Some of you may have grown up in a church like that. But in our our culture's way of viewing things, to talk about Jesus as a judge is almost unheard of. It's almost unheard of. And if you do, then what you hear is all kinds of caveats and all kinds of of kind of like uh, uh, justification of things to the point that Jesus becomes kind of like this soft judge whose only purpose there is to issue these soft pardons. But as John says here, as Jesus says in Luke 12, Jesus comes with a fire in his eyes. And we don't know that Jesus very well at all. But Jesus never minces his words. It's almost hard to read this passage in Luke 12. It's almost here because it is so direct in his mission. Almost like he's eager to carry it out. I wish that it were already kindled. 
Well, that doesn't sound like anything that would go on a Christmas card. It certainly doesn't match any imagery of like falling snow and stars in the sky and some pine trees and little birds tweeting around. Like it doesn't match that. But this is who Jesus is. This is a funny thing about judgment, though. And uh, this portion of this, I am, I am deeply indebted to Tim Keller to help me see some of this here because he was so helpful for me here. But this is the funny thing about judgment. Nobody likes it when they think about themselves, but everybody wants it when they think about others. Nobody wants judgment when they think about themselves, but everyone wants it when it comes to others. In every human mind, this is a dilemma. Nobody wants to be judged, but nobody wants to live in a world without judgment. Anarchy is not a good thing, and intuitively, we all know that is true. Our culture right now is reeling from the effects of trying to undo both parts of these things, personal and corporate judgment. And they are finding that, that, that both of these things, personal and corporate judgment, are, are not, just good, not just necessary, but good things. The problem is they have no, we, we have no mechanism in our culture for reclaiming these things once we have lost them. And this is where we find ourselves right now. Our culture right now, find, we, we find ourselves stuck between two alternatives and finding both, b- both desire, desirable but, but neither acceptable. All right, And here's, here's what I mean by that whenever I say that. The world thinks it wants to do away with judgment. And let personal autonomy rule, right? Just let that person be however they, however you want to say it. How God created them, how they are made, whatever. Let that person do their thing. Let me live life the way I want. Which works until what the way that you want doesn't square with cultural norms. And then, and then the judgment that has been cast away is so desperately wanted to come back. And this is how the whole idea of cancel culture and all that stuff comes back is because we have said no judgment until we have complete judgment and 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 the mob will determine what judgment rules this is where we live and where we exist right now and back and forth this tug of war goes complete autonomy complete permissiveness until all of a sudden you realize oh well that level of permissiveness is actually not helpful so we're going to swing it over here and we're going to drop the axe and we're going to give this judgment and then we're going to swing right back over here and this is the way we go back and forth back and forth trying to figure out what we are supposed to do torn between the desire for no judgment and the demand that judgment exists And here's why this works out this way. And this is where Tim Keller is so helpful. If there is no judgment, the world has no hope. But if there is judgment, then I have no hope. Do you see how those two things work together? If there is no judgment day, if there is no ultimate judgment of anything, then what hope is there for this world? In other words, there is no justice. There is no right and wrong. There is no way to rectify the wrongs and the pains and the sufferings of this world. There is no way to deal with all the injustice and all the brokenness that we see all around us if there is no judgment. And what response do we have to that other than to despair and to say all of this wrong? just has to be because there's no one to say it's wrong. 
But if there is a judgment day, then what hope is there for me? In other words, I know I cannot pass the test. That no matter how hard I try to be good, I intuitively know it's not good enough. The news of judgment may be good for the world in that, and that the world has to answer for its sins and for its crimes and for its wrongs. But it is bad for me because then I have to answer for my sins and for my crimes and for my wrongs. Because I too have committed, I have done things that have contributed to the suffering and the pain of this world. And our culture has no idea what to do with this. Desperately do not want judgment, but desperately want to see judgment rendered. It is a paradox that we cannot sort out on our own. So which is it? A judgment day is coming, which is good for the world or bad for me? Which one should I want? Depending on your, your school of thought, whether you're about yourself or you're about the world, you may pick one or the other. And these are the, the, the only two choices before us is if, if either Jesus is only a harsh judge or if Jesus is only a soft judge who never judges anything and never, never calls out sin and never rectifies injustice. But the truth of what Jesus is and who he is is that he brings all of these things. He is the prince of peace as well as the bearer of the sword. Two things can be true at the same time. In Colossians chapter 1, it says this, 119. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of of the cross. In making peace by the blood of the cross, he also divides all of history and all of the world. The sheep and the goats, the wheat and the tear, and on and on it goes. And what is the dividing line? It's Jesus. Again, we come back to the singularity, the onlyness of Jesus. He still is the judge of the world. Justice is not forgotten or dismissed. But in being the judge of the world, he does not leave us hopeless. Because what it tells us, what the cross tells us, is that both wrath and forgiveness can exist in the same place and in the same way, he does not leave us hopeless because our allegiance is to him above all else. And we know that the sacrifice he has made is on our behalf. And so justice is rendered. It simply isn't rendered on me. It is rendered on him in my place. So we do not despair that wrong would go unpunished. And we do not despair that our wrongs would leave us facing an avalanche of accusations that we could not withstand. 
We are not stuck in this place of trying to figure out which one do we want. No judgment or judgment. We are are forced to deal with the reality that is there, which is judgment is very real. And if the only way we cannot be rendered hopeless is if someone offers us hope and says, I will bear the judgment for you. And so Jesus is both the righteous judge as well as the one who then takes the penalty for us on our behalf. This is the gospel. This is the Christian faith. That God sent his son to make peace between man and God. And ironically, that very thing that brings us peace with God is the thing that brings us the most division with others. And so both things can be true. And so while he is the prince of peace, that does not mean that he will stand idly by He is also the righteous judge. And both of these are good things. Both of these are good things because that's how we know justice will prevail. I know it's not after Thanksgiving, and so you'll have to forgive me just a little bit here, but I think the words of I heard the bells on Christmas Day just fit appropriately here as Walt Whitman writes this poem, he says, In despair I bowed my head, there is no peace on earth, I said. For hate is strong and mocks the song of peace on earth, goodwill to men. What is it that causes him to despair? It's that the wrongs will not be righted. It's that the wrongs will win. It's that the hate will rule. It's that, 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 that all the goodness that we want in the world is mocked by all the evil. And so he despairs that there is no judge for these things. Within the final verse, he says, Then pealed the bells more loud and deep. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. The wrong shall fail, the right prevail, with peace on earth, goodwill to men. So he finds hope in the fact that judgment will be rendered. But he also finds hope that in the same one who renders the judgment also offers us peace by the blood of the cross. So how do, we, how do we reconcile these two seeming contradictions of the, the Prince of Peace who then says, I did not come to bring peace on the world but division? We say both are true. Both are gloriously, thankfully true. We want, we need, we intuitively know the demand for justice. And we ask that he would judge in righteousness. And then we plead that he would not judge us with that, with that same righteousness without someone in our place. And then he says, the cross is here. And so that same justice will be rendered, but it will not be carried out on you. Instead, it will be carried out on Jesus. This is the gospel. This is what we celebrate. God is not dead, nor does he sleep. We do not despair judgment. Because we have hope. Because Jesus is the Prince of Peace. But I want to be clear here this morning. If you are apart from Jesus, there is no comfort in any of this this morning. None. He offers no comfort apart from him. 
he makes it clear that he alone is the source of our hope and our comfort. Despair at the judgment of God is the only response you have, and you cannot run from it. You cannot hide from it, and you cannot dismiss it. Take Jesus at his own words. He is not just a good teacher. He is not just the the best philosopher the world has ever known. He is not just some kind of Jewish rabbi who's rebelling against the system. He is not those things. He is the only hope we have. That is at his own words. Jesus comes with a fire that will refine the righteous, but will destroy the wicked. So this morning, you can look to Jesus and you can find hope and the one who comes to bring peace if you choose to. Or you can look to him as the one who brings fire and comes as a judge. That is your choice that is before you. Both are true. Let's pray. Father, this morning, it is our heart's earnest desire that you would be the Prince of Peace, that we would head into a Thanksgiving and Christmas season with hearts full of joy, full of comfort, full of peace, not because we have earned some righteousness, not because we have earned some place before you, but instead because we have put our hope in Jesus. Father, help us to understand that that division and that... um, All of these things, conflict and all of these things that we wish to avoid are unavoidable if we are to hold true to the the, the truth of who you are. May we never back down from that. May we never shy away from that. May we be as Jesus was, fully committed and fully understanding of the mission that he is the only way and the only one that could accomplish it. It's in Christ's name we pray. Amen.